0: So I start reading at John chapter 16 and verse 16. The Lord Jesus Christ again is predicting his separation from the apostles, which has been such a frequent theme of this portion. And he says, a little while and you will no longer behold me. And again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples, therefore, said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not behold me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? And because I go to the Father? And so they were saying, What is this that he says, a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, Are you deliberating together about what this that I said? A little while, and you will not behold me? And again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow, because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more, for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. And then that, that, that day you will ask me no question. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will speak no more to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me. And have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. His disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly. And they're not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and that know, have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has, and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Well, let us seek the Lord's help as we look into his word this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we hear the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the words of his disciples, and they encourage us to ask for your grace, because we see not only how weak they were, but how gracious you are, and how you cared for them so constantly, perseveringly, and you gave them grace, and we, we see how your grace has led them and blessed your church. And here we are, this day, scattered, each to his home, a few of us here, and we need your Holy Spirit to meet us wherever we are. And we depend upon you and ask that you would bless the proclamation of your Holy Word and that it may go forth and accomplish all that you have purposed for it. Save sinners encourage saints we ask in Jesus name amen I thank our God and our elders for this opportunity to preach to you I thank you brethren who have been praying for me I'm very much aware of my need of God's help I'm focusing this morning on John 1633 which I call superb encouragement for needy believers. That's the title of my sermon. Superb encouragement for needy believers. It would be a good description of some of us, but I think you will agree that it is an apt title for the disciples whom Jesus is addressing in this passage. Despite these things, Jesus Seeing their need actually gives them very excellent statements of truth, which have become a blessing to us believers for thousands of years. And indeed, God has used it to draw sinners to him for thousands of years since. At this day, we are needy believers. In difficult times, what Paul told Timothy is very true. Difficult times will come. They have come. They are here. And the word of God is perfectly suited to our need. So here is encouragement for us. I have this morning four points, very often we preach with three points, but I have four points this morning, and some of them will be briefer than others. First of all, I want to set out for you the needy hearers, the needy hearers. Secondly, a gathered effective reminder, a gathered effective reminder. Thirdly, a dangerous reality, and fourthly, and invaluable encouragement. So those are my points this morning, and we'll take them uh, one at a time by God's help. So first of all, I want you to consider with me the needy hearers. I had not included this in my uh, sermon notes when I first started to write this sermon. I had my my three points, but I said I don't think I can really responsibly handle this text without saying a word about the needy hearers. It's fairly obvious, I think, but it needs to be said, and it will help us in the rest of the text. It's the people whom Jesus is addressing. Is those disciples, those eleven disciples who were with him uh, when the evening started uh, in the upper room? By the time, of course, our Lord makes the statements that we have read in John chapter 16, Uh, there are now only 11 of them. Uh, Judas Iscariot has been away, gone away on his awful task back in chapter 13, verses 27 to 30. Our Lord has been speaking vital truths to these disciples now uh, without Judas present and, and their great need. They are downcast. Because of many of the things Jesus has been telling them it is one of the interesting things about this portion, portion of the gospel record. They, they, uh, Emotions of the disciples seem to be at points like a roller coaster. At one time you sense that they are deeply discouraged and Jesus points that out to them. He understands what they're going through. At other times in this passage, it seems as they are beginning to be enlightened and exalted. And yet they are still very needy hearers. They're needy. One of them, you see, they have things that they're they're wrestling with, uh, troubles that they've experienced. One of them will betray him, and as yet, they don't really yet know why Judas has gone out. But he's the he's going to betray his his master, and they know this. They know that someone will do it. Peter will deny him, and Jesus has made it very plain, emphatically. Peter's going to deny me. Jesus is about to leave them and return to the Father, which he has said many times. It's it's kind of striking when you read what we just read, how they say we don't understand what he's saying. Well, it's what he's been saying to them again and again on the road up to Jerusalem, telling them that he's going to be rejected by the chief priests, crucified, and rise the third day. Yet, for some reason, they don't understand. He's told them, I'm going to the Father. The Spirit's going to be sent. And yet, uh, they don't seem to grasp what Jesus is saying. But he's telling them plainly, I have to leave. I'm going to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is going to be given to you. They're having difficulty what he's saying to them, and even what they do understand, they are not understanding entirely as they should. In the section we have read, it's clear the disciples are confused. He te- they, tell, they say to one another, we don't understand what he's saying. And he explains it using an illustration of the pains of childbirth. Jesus says, you're going to experience sorrow because I'm going. It's going to be like the pains of childbirth, but it issues in the birth of a child and in joy. And you're going to have joy as well and then he explains to them after this illustration he expresses to them in uh plainer language these encouraging truths starting in in verse 25 no longer using figurative language about returning to the father and how the father loves them etc and all of a sudden, they respond with, "We get it. Finally, we get it. Now, now we're not confused. We get it. We understand this. You don't have to have anybody ask you any questions. You've spoken plainly to us. And it's very interesting, is it not?" Uh, Jesus will indicate in John chapter 17 that there is a sense in which they get it. If you just glance quickly over in John 17, uh, verses 7 and 8, he's praying to the Father. He says, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. That's a reflection of Jesus' own words. And again, in verse 8, The words which you gave me I have given to them, and they have received them, and they have truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. So this is what they do understand. They do, in some sense, understand it. But with this real understanding, they don't entirely get it either. Because when they say, we get it, Jesus, what does Jesus say? He says, do you now believe? You think that you have a firm grasp on these realities in a way that you really need to? Well, evidently, they don't. And Jesus tells them from the human point of view, this would show how weak and needy these men really are. Keep in mind what we heard also in the exposition of the Gospel of Luke, Pastor Chansky's teaching. After all that Jesus told them, and after this point in time, when they say we get it, Jesus, we understand uh, still they are very needy men. They're still largely in a thick fog, unbelieving and despondent, So you joined the two on the road to Emmaus. And there are these dejected men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, what Jesus has told them. Well, these men are very needy. Nothing less than the Holy Spirit applying the words of Jesus to their hearts will do for them. But still, one of the amazing things about the passage is Jesus never rejects them. He never gives up on them. He still keeps teaching them graciously. He still gives them the words of life. He still gives them encouragement. He's never going to abandon his people. Well, this was their need. This is our need. We need God's word and we need God's spirit. And this is the Savior who cares for you and I, believer, and ministers to us all. Well, we—that's that—that's my first point this this morning. <laughs> the needy hearers consider in the second place a gathered, effective reminder in our verse. These things says, Jesus, I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. I call this a gathered, effective reminder. It, this is a peculiar description that I've given for uh, the sentence at the beginning of verse 33. Uh, Jesus is summarizing what he had told them from chapter 13 on. He had given them many instructions, valuable instructions. He patiently delivered the instructions and the instructions encouragement that these disciples needed. And in this statement, what Jesus does is he gathers them up. These things I have spoken to you, he gathers them together, and he reinforces it and gives them practical instruction and encouragement. It's like a, a father who is helping his child prepare for a camping trip. He will need his pup tent, he will need his hiking gear, he will need his cooking utensils and other things. And so he, his father takes everything and puts it in his backpack and then helps him get it on his back. And he says, as it were, in that one moment, with all that gear, here's what you're going to need. This is the impact of what Jesus is saying. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. He's gathering all of the instructions, as it were, in a bundle. And he's reminding the disciples of the value of these things. And the teaching of Jesus, Jesus tells them, connects them with Himself. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. The words of Jesus connect the the disciples of Jesus, the believing disciples, with Jesus Himself. It connects them to Him. These words provide a very needed commodity as well. It is the commodity of peace. Peace is that settled realization that with all the trouble and disorder, they have peace with God through Jesus. With all of the present disorder, they, Jesus, has complete command of everything that's happening. That's how they can have peace. Peace. This is something that they only dimly understand and appreciate at the the present time. Now many of the commentators point out that when Jesus says in me you may have peace, they, they point out that he is referring back to what he said in John 14, 27. My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, I give to you. And that's that's very good, but it is uh, interesting that in that John turn there back there for a second. Look with me for a second at the John fourteen twenty seven verse, where Jesus again is for the first time in the upper room discourse or the. Uh, Final Discourse, he he brings up the theme of peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. It's very obvious the relationship between what Jesus says there in John 14, 27, and what Jesus says in John 16, 33. This is one of those things Jesus gathers up to give his disciples in his final words at, at that time. But notice also that it is preceded by verse 26. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And now, with this promise of the Holy Spirit and his reminding ministry, he says, Peace, I leave you. I give you my peace peace. These things are important to keep together. We need both God's Word and God's Spirit. We need to remember that by His grace, the Word of God connects us with our Savior. Sometimes I think it's hard for people to grasp that. Let me make a little suggestion. Go back to Psalm 119. My wife and I are reading that in our devotions together. Psalm 119. It becomes tremendously obvious that David loves God's Word because it connects him with God. It promises him grace from God. The Word of God connects us with the God of grace. And this is what we need. We all need it. We need his grace. We need his spirit. We need his peace. You need this, believer. I need it. And if you are an unbeliever, you need it in a way that you cannot possibly comprehend until you understand the grace of God by his Holy Spirit. But there is something in this verse John 16, 33, that's even easier to miss. If it's, if it's hard to grasp the connection between Jesus' words and his our connection, our spiritual connection with him there's something else that's even easier to miss in the text. It's in these words, these things I have spoken to you. The very form of these words say something that we don't have a good way in English of saying. When he says, I have spoken, the the form of this word, this this word, uh, says something of an action with continuing effect. And it's counterintuitive because when I speak, It only takes a couple of moments for the waves of my vocal cord to go out into the distance and disappear. And so my words are gone almost as soon as they're spoken. But the word that Jesus uses implies that although the sound of his words may vanish, yet they they remain. Let Let me try and use another illustration to make this as clear as I can. If you have a cell phone, one of the newer cell phones, they are not only a pieces of amazing technology, but they are also works of art and beauty. You know, they have a beautiful piece of glass on top, and the glass looks like it's wrapping around the side of it. And uh, so you have that, that beautiful piece of technology. But then something happens to you. If you drop it on the concrete, you'll smash that piece of glass. And uh, you would say to your friend, "I have shattered the glass on my phone," and your friend would reply, "You sure did. It's in a hundred little pieces." Well, this is this is the kind of language that Jesus is using. The idea uh, that you shattered it means that something has happened. It's fallen. It's hit the pavement. And the result is the shattered glass. That's similar to what Jesus says when he says, I have said these things to you. For people who know a little bit of Greek, it's a perfect tense. And it means both the process that has happened and the result which abides. The cell phone breaks, the glass is shattered. That's what abides. When Jesus speaks, although his words may stop resounding in your ears, the words remain. The words remain. And that's the point that Jesus makes. Their effect remains. I I used to, when I was raising children who are now In their 40s, all my children, Uh, we would have these interactions that are common between children and parents. When I said to them, I told you to do this, I told you not to do this, and they would say, well, I didn't hear you. And my response was, being the man that I am, you'll learn a little bit about me here. I used to say, it's your responsibility to hear what your father says. You're responsible. There's no excuse. When your father tells you don't, you are responsible. The words may go away, but that's what I said, you see. Well, this is what it is like in the Greek language. This tense that Jesus uses. The sounds of the word go, but his words remain in their effect. You see, the words remain in their effect. This is true true of the word of god especially when god speaks we are responsible to hear and those words always have an effect you'll see this actually in john 15:3 turn for a second to john 15:3 you're going to see this jesus uses that same perfect tense in this verse when he's talking about his relationship with his disciples They have heard his teaching. And so he says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. See, that's that perfect tense word, I have spoken to you. He spoke and his words are now gone, but they have had an abiding effect. You are clean. That's your state because of the word which I have spoken to you. His words have an abiding effect for his true people, and he says this four times in this section of the Gospel of John. He says it again in chapter 15 and verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. So you see, it it creates this relationship. His words create a relationship, and it has a continuing effect upon his true. People In chapter 16, verse 1, These things I have spoken you f- uh, to you, that you may be kept from stumbling. So here's an abiding effect of the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Far after he has spoken. In verse 4, These things I have spoken to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. Jesus is saying, What I say to you remains... The sound is gone, but the words remain and have a powerful effect. It's very interesting to me that the Apostle John, who records this, states that this was true of him when he writes his first letter. Uh, Take a look over at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. Very interesting. John is reflecting back upon his time. In Jesus' presence. And now, he can still look back. He says, what was from the beginning? That's Jesus. Co-eternal with the Father. The creator of the world. And he's describing Jesus. He says, what we have heard. A peculiar word. Perfect tense. He says, not only do we did we hear it, we remember, you see. We remember Jesus. Jesus spoke to us, and we still, as it were, hear His words ringing in our ears. Well, the Word of God to us will always have one of a number of effects, some, some number of effects upon us. God's Word always makes us accountable to Him. It ought to prepare us to obey Him, to glorify God, and we need to be careful how we hear. That's the point of Jesus' word, you know, when he says, these things I have spoken to you. Those words have an impact and you're still accountable for them. Now, this is a special application to all kinds of people. This is an application, for example, to preachers. Take for a moment 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. This applies to preachers. Paul is exhorting Timothy in his final letter of 2 Timothy 1.13. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. You are to retain it. You can't lose your grip on it. It's vital for you. And then he says this, notice again the relationship between the Word and the Spirit. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which was entrusted to you. So you, preacher, have gotten the Word of God given to you. And you are jealously to guard and depend upon the Holy Spirit to help you to retain it so that you can pass it on to those who need it. It has an application to those of us who receive the ministry of the Word. All of God's people, in fact, everyone, believer or unbeliever, here's the Word of God, you have a responsibility to think on what you have heard, retain what you have word, heard, obey what you have heard. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs twenty three twenty three: by the truth, sell it not, never let go, of what God gives you. And that's why we as members of Trinity Baptist Church we've heard this exhortation, Hebrews thirteen seven. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their conduct, imitate their faith. So we never never to let it go. Never to let go what God has delivered to us. And those of you who have not yet savingly believed in Jesus and his words, you're in the greatest danger of missing all the benefit. Whenever the word of God is preached, remember Pastor Martin preaching this, the birds of the air are coming and plucking away the seed. Satan is intent on seeing that you don't receive the word of God. And you're always in danger of that. Him plucking up the good see, seed. He's uh, blinding the eyes of those who don't believe, lest they you see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's your, that's your danger. That's what Satan's doing. And you need to pay attention and treasure up the word of God. We have all kinds of responsibilities to hear what certain people say. Husbands need to listen to their wives. Pastor Huffmeyer told us that. We need to listen to our wives. We can't always say if we're constantly saying, well, I didn't hear what you said. It's it's a big problem, isn't it? I sometimes say that to my wife. She "Tell me something. I say, well, I don't remember that, June. I should hear. I should listen. Wives ought to listen to their husbands. Pastor Huffmeyer taught us that as well. Children should listen to their parents. When my children were very young, we went to a doctor, the pediatrician who helped my wife give birth to our first children. He told us the story about a child right near his office whose mother was telling him not to stick his head out the bus window. Keep your head in the bus. And as the boy disobeyed his mom with his head out the window. The bus drive, drove by a telephone pole and killed him because he wouldn't obey. And the, the doctor told us of that and told us how important it was to teach our children to listen. Children, you need to listen. Parents ought to listen to their children. Right? Remember what it was like when you were a child? I, I actually can remember my mom talking to me when I came home from school bubbling over with all the events of the day and mom was too busy cooking and she would say things like oh wasn't that nice oh how nice and then the day came when I realized mom wasn't listening at all I could have said mom an alien came down and took me up in a spaceship and I went to Mars and, and now I'm back for dinner she would have said oh wasn't that nice she wasn't listening parents listen to your children but most of all We must pay attention and take the Word of God to heart. If we don't, if you don't, you'll be a loser. And perhaps you'll be the biggest loser. Well, I want to wrap up this point, which I know I'm taking more time than perhaps I should. By underscoring the great benefit we have by paying attention to the Word of God praying over the word of god and remembering the word of god you, you you remember the guy who says be wise memorize the word of god is intended to give peace comfort stability well-being and you know what people are saying now i say to me all the time when i talk to my customers on the phone with our webexes and stuff They say, stay safe, be well. I know what they mean. But you know what? Their words cannot do any of that for us. We won't be safe because they say be safe. Despite our best efforts, we won't be well just because they say be well. But when Jesus says, in me, in my words, you will have peace, those are effective words. Effective words—they are an effective, a gathered, effective reminder. So that those are my first two points: the needy hearers and a gathered, effective reminder. Very, very briefly, the third point is an a, uh, a dangerous reality. A dangerous reality. Back in our text, John sixteen thirty-three. Our Lord says next, In the world you have tribulation. In the world you have tribulation. It's actually what you might call a real and present danger. It is a danger. It is a present danger. Sometimes people read this verse like it's a future tense. And I was surprised as I was going through the text and doing my... Greek spade work to see that it's the present tense. He he doesn't say you're going to be in tribulation. You're going to have tribulation. Well, that was true. That was true. Uh, And we have verses in the Bible like that, like 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's going to happen. But that's not what this text says. In this text, Jesus is telling his disciples, you already have tribulation. You already have that word, tribulation. Again, I remember my pastors teaching me this. It's that pressured situation that presses in upon the soul and oftentimes works all kinds of disorder and sin. it It was imminently true of these disciples, what they're facing He's selling them, right now, you are in the storm. You might be in the upper room. You might say, well, Jesus is here with us. Everything seems fine. But you are in a storm. You are in the greatest danger. This is uh, what threatens their states, their safety. They have various troubles, and they feel it. They are faced with unbelief. And pretty soon they're going to succumb to it in some degree. They're faced with the unbelief of all of those people around them, the scribes and the Pharisees who didn't believe in Jesus. They're faced with the danger of the rebellion of people all around us. They seem like a small little clique of people whom nobody agrees with. Sometimes Christians feel that way, don't they? They're surrounded by persecutions. They're surrounded with the dangers of their own hearts. Peter, remember, poor dear Peter. I don't want to sound like I despise Peter. I love Peter. But the poor man didn't know his own heart. He He didn't get it. Didn't really know himself. That's why he's Vaunting himself up over the rest of these guys. They might deny you, but you know me? I'm ready to go to prison and death with you, Jesus. Poor Peter. He didn't know his heart. In fact, none of them really did. As Pastor Smith pointed out this morning, they wouldn't have been talking about who's the greatest. Obviously, they didn't know themselves. They didn't know their hearts. And these things threatened to undermine their peace and drive them... Number one, to sin, and number two, to apostasy. Because that's, that's where our sins want us to go. I remember when it struck me, here at Trinity Baptist Church, hearing the ministry when I was quite a bit younger than I am now. And I realized, Satan doesn't want me to just sin. Satan wants me to divorce my wife. Satan wants me to divorce my friends. Satan wants me to go to hell what he wants the disciples are faced with those kinds of troubles those pressured situations and we are faced with manifold troubles in this day the coronavirus of course is only one of them only one of them and it can cause the loss of life it can cause the death of friends relatives relatives Those whom we love, it can create the loss of jobs, the loss of savings, isolation, the danger of isolation. It's very real. Many other pressures we are faced with in this day. Only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can protect us. Only our Savior can protect us, ultimately. The coronavirus can only do so much to us. But unbelief in the world can drive us to many dangerous things. The coronavirus, what can it do? Well, you say, it could kill you, Mr. Dewana. Surely again. You know, when you believe in Jesus, you can say, okay, that's not such a bad thing. If I can go and see my Savior... If that's the door that Jesus brings me through to see my Savior and to be at peace and to enjoy the blessings of eternal life in His presence, well, it's not so bad. Now, most of my friends at work will say, Frank has really lost it now. But no, this is the truth about the Christian's life. He's looking forward to eternal life in Jesus Christ. But there are many, many things, many things our sins can do. And again, remember what Jesus says earlier in John, John 16. One, his words keep us from stumbling, you see. Holding on to the Lord Jesus Christ keeps us from stumbling. It keeps us from unmitigated fear, unbelief, sin, the temptation to obey our sins. That's what—that's one of the impacts of isolation and the coronavirus. You know, you, you can't watch sports anymore on TV unless you want to go and watch an old world series. But still, your sins, your lusts cry out for satisfaction. It's a danger, you see. And of course, one of the great dangers... Is dishonoring our Savior. That's why David prays. He doesn't want the people of God to be ashamed because of him. It's a danger. And these are dangerous realities. And these are the dangerous realities which Jesus addresses to us. In me you will have peace, he says. In the world you have tribulation. There they are together. In our Friday evening Bible study, we have been looking at a, another book by John Owen, The Glory of Christ. And in it, in uh, John Owen makes the point that if you have Christ, you have a remedy against every kind of danger, every kind of trouble. It doesn't deny, see, Jesus is not denying that there is tribulation. To me, that's very significant. Because people will say, well, if you're a Christian, you know, you have no troubles, really. The Lord wants you to be rich. The Lord wants you to be healthy. The Lord wants you to have the best life you can have. Well, I'll buy that last one a bit in, in a qualified way. But Jesus never promises us that there won't be tribulation. No, you are in tribulation, and there's going to be tribulation. But there is also this dangerous, beside the dangerous reality, finally... An invaluable encouragement. An invaluable encouragement. We have considered the needy hearers. We have considered a gathered effective remedy in the words of Jesus and the dangerous reality of continuing tribulation. Finally, an invaluable encouragement. Look at verse 33 again. But take courage. I have overcome the world. There are two parts to this invaluable encouragement in the light of all of our need and our weakness and the tribulations. It is an invaluable encouragement of two parts. First of all is a command. Take courage. Take courage. Don't be fearful. Don't be despondent. Don't let go of Christian hope. And Christian hope is a very different thing from the power of positive thinking. It's a very different thing. Take courage. In order for you to obey this, of course, you have to have the Lord Jesus Christ. You may and you must believe in Jesus Christ and in God. Remember, again... Back in the Upper Room Discourse, what Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Or, you believe in God, you also believe in me. Very, various ways to translate it. But, you must, you must have the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are going to be able to obey this in any way at all, the word "take courage" is a very interesting word. I won't take the time, but at least I'll give you the texts. The word involves a condition, a situation which must be resisted or over, and overcome. That's what it means to take courage. Resist. You have a trial, you have a difficulty, you need to resist it and overcome it. I'll give you just one text in Matthew 9.2, and I'll tell you some others that you can look up if you want to study this out. It's very helpful. Matthew 9.2. Here's the case of the paralytic that they were bringing to Jesus lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son. That's the exact same word. Take courage, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus says, whatever you may have experienced as a paralytic, two things are true. It's not the worst thing in the world for you to be a paralytic. Your sin is a much greater trial Then anything else you're experiencing is a paralytic. But take courage. You need in the consciousness that you are a paralytic sinner. You have to understand that I will forgive your sins if you trust in me. I will forgive your sins. I will make provision for your sins. So you are to take courage. Why? Because your sins are forgiven. So you see, here's the problem. Of his sin, not just his paralysis, but his sin, and the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the problem, and how it is overcome. You can look in Matthew nine twenty two, Matthew fourteen twenty seven, Mark six fifty, Acts twenty three eleven, and one more interesting uh, place when the crowds were with the blind man uh, by the road, and uh, Jesus tells him. Bring him here. The crowd said, take courage. He's calling for you. That's what you should wish for, my unconverted friend. That Jesus, through his word, would call for you to come to him. And then you could take courage in the midst of all the troubles and all the trials. But that's what Jesus says. This is the first part, an exhortation. Take courage. But again, this is has an effective basis. Take courage, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. What is the basis for courage for a Christian? What is the proper basis for the courage of any non Christian who senses his need, doesn't know what to do? I'm so afraid. I'm afraid I'm going to get sick. I'm afraid I'm going to die. I'm afraid I'll end up in hell. Well, you need what Jesus promises. You need an interest in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need the power of positive thinking. You don't need to really think well of yourself. Actually, the very opposite is true. You need to see yourself as a sinner. Worthy of hell. And your whole hope must be in Jesus himself and what he has done. Jesus says he has overcome. Really interesting. Very briefly. Remember what I said about the cell phone? Hitting the glass and getting shattered? These things I have spoken to you so they remain? That's what he says about his victory. I have overcome. It's done. It's complete. It will never be reversed. I have overcome the world. You need to overcome the world, Christian. You need to overcome the world, sinner. Jesus had already done it. Very interesting, is it not? Because Jesus, remember, is in the upper room. Oh, no. No, I'm sorry. He's just near Gethsemane, isn't he? He's about to go and weep for three hours with the bloody sweat. You might say, well, how is that a victory? He's, he's there crying out to God with loud cries and tears. Well, it's very simple. Jesus is feeling the sting of death. Hmm. Paul says the sting of death is sin. The curse of sin is the law. Jesus is experiencing the precursor of the wrath of God which will be poured out upon him when he hangs upon the cross. But he has already defeated it. He has already fulfilled the will of God. The only thing left for him to do is to go to the cross and absorb the waves of God's wrath upon his soul. And he knew he would do it. And he did it. He had overcome the world. What a tremendous sentence. What's all packed into that? And don't have really the time to tell you all that's packed into I have overcome the world. Well, he overcame the opposition of the world to him, which started when he was a baby. Remember when he's born. The first thing that happens in the history of Jesus after he's born is Herod tries to kill him. That's Satan trying to kill him. Remember how he was dogged by his enemies when he went to the synagogues and preached. What's, what's, what, how does this guy know these things? We know this guy. And they're, and they're ready to throw him off the edge of the cliff. And the Pharisees oppose him constantly. Sinners oppose him constantly. Jesus never gives up. He never turns his back on his Father. He never turns his back on his Father's will. Even when Satan comes and tries to tempt him and say, Look, you don't have to go to the cross. I'll give you all the world. Oh, just one little thing you need to do for me. Jesus is faithful. He was faithful to the end. And our safety as believers is entirely based, not upon us. We have responsibilities. I get that. But it's based upon what Jesus did. Jesus overcame the world. And if you and I are going to overcome the world, our confidence has to be in Jesus and his grace. And he will make us overcome the world. He will. That's what John says in 1 John, right? right? This, is that which, this is the victory, same root word, that overcomes the world, our faith. Our faith, of course, is Jesus. It's in him. And Jesus promises to his disciples here, be of good courage. Oh, you're weak. You're needy. You're despondent. You're fearful. Doesn't matter. It it doesn't matter in one sense. It's dishonoring to God. Yes, you shouldn't be afraid. Yes, you shouldn't let it derail you. But your safety is in Jesus. He has overcome the world. And he will make you and I to be overcomers by his grace and his spirit. Well, we have looked at the knee hearers. A gathered effective remedy. A dangerous reality. An invaluable encouragement. I say one last time for today. This is what... Every hearer needs, every one of you needs to hear these words. Sinner, this is what you need. All the things of this life that you're craving for, the admiration of men, you don't need it. I tell you what, you don't need people to tell you how nice and how good you are. You need people who will tell you the truth. You don't need a vaccine. I, I, don't misunderstand me. I pray that God will soon give a vaccine to the medical people who are working. But a vaccine can only delay what's inevitable. It is a point unto men wants to die and after this judgment. That's going to happen whether they get a vaccine or not. And vaccine doesn't cure all your ills. You need to repent of your sins And secure the forgiveness freely given by the Lord Jesus Christ. You need everlasting, never-ending life. And this is what Jesus can give you if you come and trust in him. Let's pray. Our Father, once again we come to you just as our Savior taught us. He told us that we can pray to you. And although you are in control of all of the galaxies and all of the solar systems and all of the stars, and though you are ruler of heaven and earth, you will hear our prayers. So incline your ear to us and hear our prayers for your glory and honor. Please bless the things that have been declared from your holy word. Especially, Lord, honor your word. To the extent that it has been truly declared, honor it. Where it has been astray, redirect it. Give to your people everything they need for life and godliness. Keep us in the way, keep us from our sins, forgive us our sins. And lead us in the way of everlasting life for your name's sake. We do trust in you, our Father. We trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done, all that he has said. This is our life. Save your people. Do good to your people. End the coronavirus. Send forth your spirit upon your servants who preach. Bless. All of those whom you have chosen to eternal life with eternal life. And do it, we pray. Do it soon. Please hear us for Jesus' glory and honor and yours. Amen.